So we're starting a new sermon series this morning, and I would encourage you to uh, grab your booklet, your workbook, if you've got one. Uh, we're going to be trying uh, some new things today. As you can tell, we've got a, a PowerPoint up front. We're going to try this out a little bit and see if it uh, provides me a little easier access in terms of referring to the screen. Uh, but we are in, uh, going to start a series in the book of Esther. And so there's a, a workbook here. There's uh, the passages that we're going to be looking at each week. There's some questions that we will be using each week. They're familiar questions. And uh, we're going to spend the next uh, seven weeks or so working our way through the book of Esther. Now, one of the things that we should note about the book of Esther is that it hasn't always been a book of the Bible that has been well-loved and appreciated in the life of the church. For example, the book of Esther is one of the only books of the Old Testament where there are no pieces of parchment that are in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Almost every other book of the Bible has some portion of it that shows up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but not Esther. And in fact, for seven centuries, the church of Jesus Christ didn't have a commentary written or a sermon written on the book of Esther. Martin Luther and John Calvin both said, we'd rather not have Esther as part of the Bible. And so the book of Esther as, a, as scripture, as part of the word of God, has always had a bit of a confusing life in the church. You might have heard uh, growing up that Esther is the only book of the Bible that doesn't have the name for God. It doesn't have the name God. It doesn't have the name the Lord. And so how can we spend seven weeks focused on a book of the Bible where God doesn't show up, or at least not obviously show up? In the book of Esther, we don't see the main characters praying. We hear about them praying. But as we've learned over the last couple of weeks, there's lots of people in our culture and our society, especially in sports media, who talk about prayer. But to my recollection, only former Lions quarterback Dan Orlovsky actually prayed online or on screen for DeMar Hamlin. So what do we do with this book of the Bible where there's no mention of Sabbath, no mention of sacrifice, no mention of other Jewish practices, there's no mention of God? Do we take this book and say it's a really nice part of the Bible? Or do we recognize and wrestle with the truth that this is part of God's story? After all, if God gives us the Bible, not just as his words to know the truth of what he's done, but the story of who he is, then Esther provides us a window into the character of God and how he often chooses to operate in a very unique way. Which leads us to the question of why Esther?
There's a couple of really good reasons why we would choose to look at Esther. The one is that the whole story takes place in Susa, not in Israel. It's a story of exiles, of God's people living in a land that is unfamiliar, in a culture and society whose values are completely different than what God would want them to have. It doesn't take too many steps of the imagination to recognize that's kind of where we are. We are often exiles, trying to figure out what it means to be the people of God far from home, in a culture and society that is very different than our own. And the reality is that for many of us, where God shows up and how God shows up is much less like God to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, right? We're not getting that voice. God isn't appearing to us in a dream like he did to Joseph. God isn't sending an an angel into our pantry on Monday afternoon to, to give us a word from God. The reality is that for most of us, 99% of our lives, other than maybe those mountaintop experiences, those few and far between experiences where God shows up and reveals himself to us in a remarkable way, our lives look a lot like the book of Esther, where the places where he is and the work he is up to is not necessarily so obvious but it is there. And so the book of Esther helps us to wrestle through and to recognize how to look for God and how to trust God when where he is and what he's up to isn't so obvious. The other reason we look at Esther is that the people in Esther that are the heroes of the story, Mordecai and Esther, feel powerless to do anything and make a difference. And often when they do the right thing, nothing happens. Which is often our experience as well. And so how do we, as God's people, who find ourselves in a society that isn't necessarily all that familiar to us, who aren't always able to see exactly how God is using the situation where we are, where when we do good things, we don't always experience a reward, and we often feel powerless to act, where do we see God? And how do we grow in trust of what he's up to? So you want to look at a map with me? 
Esther begins way over here in the citadel of Susa. We are in the capital city. It's modern-day Iran, but we're pretty far from home, right? Jerusalem is the homeland of God's people, and the route isn't a direct route like we might go on 96 from Grand Rapids to Lansing. We got to follow the water, and so we got to follow the Thornapro uh, River as we wind our way up into and then down through the Euphrates River. And uh, we learn in the Bible that God's people go into exile about 600 years before Jesus. And then over the next 100 years or so, there's a group of Jews who are transported out to the Persian capital, Susa. And so we're either even farther away from home than we originally were in a very unfamiliar land, in a very unfamiliar place, but in a place where God is nonetheless going to show up. And each week, as we work through the message, as we work through our workbook, one of the primary questions that we are going to ask each week is where is the last place that we would expect God to be? And yet, there he is. And in chapter 1, and in the book of Esther, we begin by noting that the last place that we would imagine God to be would be all the way across the world, far from the temple, far from Jerusalem, far from the homeland of the Jews, in a Persian court, in the middle of a 180-day party, which is where the story begins. If you have your Bible, you can read along with me. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 121 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles, The provinces were present for a full 180 days. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. But that wasn't enough. 180 180 days was not enough because after we have a seven-day party, for just Susa. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. And so if we're thinking about this text, what we have to be thinking about is if we were going to have a 180-day party for the people of First Cutlerville, you and I would have enough space in the facility For the most part, we're fitting in the worship center. If we want to sprawl out and get some sleep, there's some rooms we can go around, right? But if we're going to have a a half a year party, 
we can fit in this space. But if we're going to invite the citadel of Susa, if we're going to invite Cutlerville or Byron Center, we're probably going to need the extent of the campus in order for this to to work, right? Because we're going to need room for tents. We're going to need room for the barbecues. One kitchen isn't going to be enough. And so we're going to need some food trucks to come in. And so while the first party is big, you can imagine that the second party is where all of the stops are getting pulled up. And it is like chaos. So we've gone from like uh, an intense to downtown Las Vegas. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold. Make sure you don't chip a tooth. Oh, wait, you can't because it's gold. Each one different from the other. The royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restriction. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. The literal translation here is that it is Persian law that everyone can have as much as they want. Which is to say that the only rule that oversees this party is that there are no rules. And then we get a little bit of a sense of what the kind of book of Esther is like. Because if you have your Bible open and you go back, we learn about the party of the king starting in verse 5 all the way through verse 8. And we get lots of descriptions, lots of details, lots of wonderful aspects of this garden party. And then we get in verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now, I realize that it's January 8th, it's 10.10, and you're not quite awake yet. But that is a joke according to the author of Esther. Right? The author is setting us up, saying, look at this king. This king is all about parties, all about himself, all about celebrating, all about grandeur. And oh yeah, Vashti, yeah, she had a party too. The woman here is the, an afterthought. And she will clearly become an afterthought even more in the verses ahead. But this is done to set us up to be thinking about King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, his other name, in a way that sort of wonders about the silliness of this king. Who makes a rule at his party to say, we've only got one rule. You got to drink whatever you want. That's it. It's a satire, it's a farce, it's funny, until it's not. Keep going. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits, he commanded a whole bunch of eunuchs, seven there, to bring before, uh, bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown, wink, wink, in order to display her beauty 
to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Just the crown. When the attendants delivered the king's command, shock of all shocks, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious. Notice he's still high spirits from wine. And burns with anger. And since it was customary for the king to consult with experts in the matters of the law and justice, he spoke with wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. We get a whole bunch of names there. There are seven of them who had special access to the king and were in the highest kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? Pause. We all know that if we are angry and full of rage, especially under the influence, the best thing we can do is go to our seven best friends for advice who are also in high spirits and angry. Correct? No. Again, the author is setting us up to see this king as a joke. This man doesn't even know how to handle his own wife. He doesn't know what to do, and so he calls his friends in. I, I'm feeling kind of sad and angry. I don't, what should I do here? And of course, the advisors are willing to oblige. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes, and the eunuchs have taken her. Then Memekin replied in the presence of the kings, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all of the nobles and the people of the providences. By her not coming out and just her crown, she has offended not just you, king, but she has offended me and all of the other nobles. And in fact, she has offended every man everywhere that lives in Persia. This is a messed up court. Because no one says, that's a crazy idea. He goes on. Because the queen's conduct, saying no to a foolish request, will become known to all women and they will despise their husbands. And say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to brought for, but she didn't come. And so clearly the women everywhere, because word travels fast in those days, all over the provinces, the kingdom will fall in the next week because of what Queen Vashti has done. Foolishness. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility have heard about it, will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. Let it be written in all the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Queen Vashti is never to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Let the king give her a royal position to someone else who is better than she is. And let the, ki- the king's edict be proclaimed through all his vast array, so that all of the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Now, we've got to look at something here that's extremely important for how we understand and approach Esther. And it's that Esther is wisdom literature. Throughout the history of God's people, Jews, Christians, Esther has not been grouped with Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, 
Samuel, Kings. It's not the history of God's people. It's been put in a group with Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, wisdom, literature, where God is using the story of himself, the prayers of his people, the wise teachings of his leaders to tell the people how they are to live in relationship to him and to the world. And in chapter one of Esther, we are getting a royal lesson in wisdom literature. That foolishness is making important decisions in high spirits. That foolishness is then asking your very best friends how you should operate while they're in high spirits and you're angry to an intimate situation. Foolishness is throwing a party where there are no rules. Foolishness all over the place. And God in Esther is going to continue to use the Persian court, King Xerxes, his advisors, as foils, as sort of the opposite, the foolish players in this drama to hold up what wise living looks like, what wisdom appears to be. Foolishness is not taking a single event and blowing it all over out of proportion and saying the downfall of the kingdom is coming because of this one no. And again, I hope you're reading between the lines just a bit and hearing Fox News and MSNBC and the people we listen to every single day who take one event and blow it out of proportion to say that the end of the world is here. Esther chapter 1 says that's foolishness. When you are far from home, and it doesn't, isn't it obvious where God is? And the king on the throne is not the one that you chose. That does not mean that God has stopped being present, that God is not at work. And over and over and over, the author of Esther will set us up with these strange, comical, odd situations to get us to wonder about where God is calling us into wise living and to see where he is. Which is why we got to read four verses out of chapter 2. Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti. Now the phrase he remembered is an extremely important phrase in the Old Testament when God is choosing to act. The story of Noah turns when it says that God remembered. The story of Exodus turns when God remembered his people. 
And so there's, the author is using a little bit of a hint to say, while it is King Xerxes who remembered, God is using King Xerxes' memory to set in motion something that only God can see. God remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what he had said, and he's sad. So the king's personal attendant said, hey, let's find a new queen. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every realm. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's unit, who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given. And the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. It appealed to the king, and so he followed it. And you and I are invited to note that just as God's memory of his people was the beginning of his deliverance of them throughout the Old Testament, that's true here as well. That in places where we don't see exactly where God is, we should not doubt that he has forgotten or that he is remembering, that God has not forgotten us. Let's pray. God, as we begin this book and as we try to work our way through um, Esther in all of its uniqueness, um, we pray that you will continue to move in our hearts in our reflections, and that we will come to know and love you and appreciate who you are all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.